in this series that we're in. Uh, I just think it's just a beautiful privilege to be able to open up God's Word and have just this series of instructions that are so pertinent to the life of our church. Uh, so join with me in a word of prayer uh, as we dive in. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us by your spirit through your apostles and prophets about your son. Uh, as we open up uh, this letter to Timothy, we pray that it would be filled with application that we can put into practice so that our gathering and our service to you as a church throughout the week and especially uh, on days like today would be pleasing to you. Uh, Lord, we we thank you for your salvation and we also want to be built up together in the truth. So, Lord, please remove any element of me from this message, and we just pray that you would communicate to your people so that we can respond to you in worship, love, and obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is How to Be a Good Servant, and we'll dive into that. And we're actually going to do this in two parts, but we're focusing on verses 6 through 10 here in the chapter that was just read. First Timothy 4, 6 through 10. Our church right now is in a, se- a, a season of transition, right? And also nationally, it's a crazy time to be a, a, an evangelical, in all honesty. There's former national figures that are flip-flopping theologically. There's other Christian leaders leaving the faith. Uh, there's scandals. There's headlines relating to abuse. There's online culture wars that are tearing people apart. And so I think it's pertinent that we ask right now, what is the job of a pastor? What is the job of a pastor? Is he primarily a preacher? Is a pastor or elder or overseer primarily a preacher, teacher, public theologian, or or maybe he's mostly a vision caster, or he's mostly the CEO of a church, or COO? There's all sorts of different answers that we could give to this. But hopefully you remember the person who was arguably one of the first pastors, if not the first pastor, the Apostle Peter, and the instructions that Jesus gave him upon his resurrection. Asked him three times, do you love me? And his response was, feed my sheep. And that's it. That is fundamentally the job of a pastor, is simply to serve Jesus, as Jesus is the one that tends his people. He saves his people and takes care of them. And so our job is simply to serve Jesus in that endeavor. And I don't know about you, but it's mind-blowing to me that the same Jesus that died for his people also chooses some of those same people to serve as under-shepherds to the rest of the flock. So the job of a pastor, of an elder, is to be a servant of Jesus. Our ultimate aim is just to hear that well-done, good, and faithful servant. So fame shouldn't matter. Human approval shouldn't matter. Politics in the church shouldn't matter. Our master's opinion is all that matters. So we want to figure out how we can please our master, how to be a good servant. So this series that we're in, House Rules, which we've grounded in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, where Paul says that he's writing to Timothy in order that he might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So in the first chapter, we saw Timothy's charge And Paul also shared about his calling. In the second chapter, we had instructions for worship and also for the roles of men and women in the church. Chapter 3, we saw qualifications for elders, deacons, and Paul's purpose for writing, which he grounds in the gospel, which is the basis of the church itself. And then last week, we saw that there are heresies that we need to avoid that can obscure or even deny the gospel. So two weeks ago, we went from the mystery of godliness, the gospel, at the end of chapter 3, and then last week, 
We saw perversions of godliness, the mystery of godliness, perversions of godliness. This week, I want to look at practices of godliness. And we're going to hear some repetition as we dive into the rest of the chapter. We're going to tackle this in two parts, being a good servant. Part one is verses 6 through 10. The second part, we're going to look at the end of the chapter, verses 11 through 16. But you will hear some of the same refrains. You will hear throughout the rest of the book a lot of instructions that repeat themselves because this is Paul's pep talk to his protege. So he's going to repeat himself a few times, and that's okay. This is counsel that we can all employ. It's not just for professional clergy. It's not just for professional Christians. We, we can all live this out. And my central contention this morning is going to be that a good servant of Christ Jesus warns of error, feeds on the truth, trains for godliness, because he hopes in God. And we'll explore what that means. But take a look at the first verse there, verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's our aim in ministry, to be a good servant, being trained in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine that you have followed. So we'll start there, and we'll see that a good servant of Christ Jesus warns of error. That's our first point this morning. A good servant of Christ Jesus warns of error. So what are these things that he makes reference to? It's the threat of false teaching that we discussed, that we saw last week, right? That there are these people who are employing the teachings of demons, that they, through their insincerity and through their lies, their, their consciences are seared and they're forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from food that God created to be enjoyed and thanked for. And so he says that Timothy needs to lay these things out, the threat of false teaching and the biblical response. He has to put these things before the brothers, so he has to lay it out there. He has to train the people of God to discern. I think oftentimes we think that the word discernment is kind of a dirty word. Right? Discernment is what you do if you're a little bit imbalanced. But the truth is, is that a pastor does need to train the people of God to discern. When the gospel goes out, hear this, when the gospel goes out, it goes out not only with encouragements, but also with warnings. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul wasn't at times afraid to name names. He warned of error. He told Timothy to do the same. So whether you are aspiring to the office of pastor or overseer or elder, or whether you're a small group leader, life group leader, whether you're leading a prayer group, or whether you're just pastor dad at home, or or maybe you're a mom working with your kids, whatever it looks like, are we good servants in this way? Do we warn God's people about error? To reference back again to the Gospel of John, in John 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, right? And the good shepherd lays down his life for the flock. But what does he contrast himself with? A hired hand, a hireling. And he says the difference between a hired hand and a hireling in verses 11 through 13, John 10, he says the difference is is not that they don't both tend the sheep. The hired hand tends for the sheep just the same as the shepherd does, right? Right? feeding the, you know, put, putting food out in the troughs, whatever you do with, you don't feed sheep out of troughs. You, you, you take them to pastures, right? I'm obviously a shepherd. <laughs> you can tell I know what I'm talking about. But they both care for the sheep. What's the difference? The distinction is when the wolf comes. When the wolf comes, that's when the hireling runs off. And that's when the good shepherd stays. 
So in our capacity as servants of God, wherever he has us stationed in life, are we hirelings? Do we run when there's an error to be warned of, a falsehood to be opposed? Or do we stay firm? Do we warn of threats? And here's a good test for that, by the way especially if you're handling the word of God. If you're handling the word of God, maybe you're teaching Sunday school, whatever this looks like for you. If there's a particular text or a passage of scripture that you blush at, that you shy away from, that makes you feel uncomfortable, that you don't want to teach, that's probably the one that you need to lean most into. Possibly the one that others around you need you to lean most into. Because we shouldn't be embarrassed by any of God's word. We should do what Paul said in in Acts chapter 20. We should present the whole counsel of God's word. We may not want to talk about a certain issue. That's why expository preaching and teaching, going through the text of scripture as it presents itself to us, pulling out truth from that, not putting our own ideas in, but pulling out from the text. That's why that's the best way to interact with God's word because then it's not our ideas driving things. It's whatever God wants to address in his timing. And it's amazing to me how just in the life of the church, even if we're just working through a book sequentially, how God always draws out particular applications for his people at various times. He's sovereign over that. He's working in and through it. But if there's a part of scripture that we blush at, that's what we need to lean into the most. We can't be ashamed of any of it. A good servant of Christ Jesus warns of error Not only does he warn of error, but he also feeds on the truth. And that's the second point. A good servant of Christ Jesus feeds on the truth. He says that Timothy should put these things before the brothers. He also says that Timothy is being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that he has followed. That's at the end of verse 6. So Timothy is nourished. That's what trained means. It means nourished. He's given nutrition in the words of the faith and the sound doctrine. So this is constant. This is in the present tense. This doesn't mean that he finished his degree, right? The diploma's on his wall, checkbox, his training's done. This is continual on-the-job training. This is continual ed. This is his life pattern of drip-brew Bible saturation. He must continue and persevere in this in order to be a good and faithful servant. Maybe you are familiar with what Paul later says in 2 Timothy chapter 1.5. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwell in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So this was the pattern of his upbringing, that he was familiar with the scriptures. Paul says the same thing to him in chapter 3. He says that he's been familiar with the scriptures, with the sacred writings from childhood. So this was the pattern. This was the trajectory of his life. He didn't just start training because he had something to do in ministry. He had an assignment. This characterized his whole lifestyle with study. And notice what it is that he studies. He's to study the words of the faith and the good doctrine that he's followed. He's to avoid irreverent, silly myths. So the point is not that he would just study all of the counterfeits. The point is not that he would be a master of all apologetics and know all of the details of every false religious system and every false doctrine out there in order to be able to refute them all individually. That has its place. That has its value. But the focus is that he knows the truth. Many of you are probably aware of of the fact that when people and workers in the government and in law enforcement want to be able to recognize counterfeit currency that makes it into the market, they don't spend their time studying all the different counterfeit bills. They spend their time immersing themselves in what the actual legal tender looks like. 
so that when they're presented with a counterfeit, they can immediately see what's off. And that's a similar concept here. We have to be so familiar with the truth that we can spot error a mile away, even if we don't know the source, the root, the history behind it, that we know the truth. We know the text of Scripture itself. This is for us individually and for pastors. A pastor must be studied in the truth. And notice how Paul refers to the truth. He calls it the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So the words of the faith, the word in which God reveals himself, the Bible, the scriptures. But not just the Bible, it's theology as well. Bible and theology. Scripture and teaching. The text and the doctrine. See, it's important not just to interact with the text of scripture, but also with the systems of theology that are drawn out of that and dependent on that. In our culture, we're guilty of what I would call hyperbiblicism. Right? We think that as long as it's just me and my Bible under a tree somewhere, maybe, you know, and I'm just going to study that, that I don't need any outside helps or influences or anything like that. And it is true that our faith is only based on the text of Scripture. Scripture alone is sufficient, but Scripture needs to be interpreted. Scripture is not rightly interpreted, then there's no use. In fact, things in church history like creeds, like confessions, like the articles of faith that we have in the BFC— Documents like that guide us, and they fence in our interpretations. They make sure that we're reading it rightly. Timothy is to be familiar with not only the words of the faith, but also with the good doctrine versus the bad doctrine of the heretics in verses 1 through 5. So this includes receiving teaching from others and also self-feeding. The verb here is passive or middle, being trained. So this is either he's receiving teaching from others, or he's self-feeding, or he's doing both. And that's true for all of us, pastors and laypersons. We must be in the word, studying not just every error that's out there, studying the truth. Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't simply say have nothing to do with heresies. That would almost go without saying. Maybe it doesn't, but it should. But have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So let's talk about what that means, but there's a contrast going on here. Irreverent, that word could also be translated profane. It literally comes from two words that mean go and across a a, a threshold, the entrance into a building. So it's entering into a building unauthorized. This is somebody who treads on holy ground without due preparations first. He's trespassing on holy things. So unholy is what's meant by irreverent here. Imagine glibly strutting into God's presence. So in the context of myths, teachings, ideas, these are teachings that hold holy things and treat them in profane, base ways. So they do the opposite of encouraging reverence towards God. They push the bounds of speculation, and they bring down your view of God to a base and uh, impure, impure level. And then the word silly here is really fascinating. Literally, it's old womanish. So we might say these are old wives' tales. And the truth is, you're not supposed to get your theology from the canasta table at the retirement village. Can we all agree on that? That's kind of the idea here as well. So think of some of these irreverent silly myths in our days. There's an entire shelf of books, right, in in Walmart and in Target that have to do with 
knowing your identity and your own self-worth, and it's all about you, and it's, it's cloaked in Christian terminology, but it's all about you. It's bringing God down to our own profane level. There's an entire genre of heavenly tourism literature, which I thoroughly discourage you all from reading because Scripture is sufficient. There's, there's other fictional genres, the stuff that speculates about angels and demons, and we can get sucked into all of this. And if, if it's not in books, it's on YouTube, the Internet, it's everywhere irreverent and profane. So here's the contrast that he's setting up. He's saying not just have nothing to do with heresies, have nothing to do with things that are unhelpful. It's important to distinguish truth and error, but it's perhaps equally important to distinguish truth from trivialities. These are things that, whether true or false, many times false, but they're also just not helpful. Just because something, listen, isn't abjectly heretical, doesn't mean that it's edifying. When we're engaging teaching or any content that we come across, the question is not just, is it orthodox? That one might be hard to answer in some context, but the question is, is this edifying? Is this helping me grow? Or is it irreverent and silly? Is it time-wasting? Is it encouraging idleness? Because the truth bears fruit in our lives. The only way to bear fruit as a disciple of Jesus is to be grounded in the truth. But these irreverent, silly myths that we could concern ourselves with easily, not only do they lead to believing falsehoods, but they lead to fruitlessness, idleness, time-wasting in our lives. So Paul's concerned not only with knowledge, but also with application of those truths. So a good servant of Christ Jesus warns of error, feeds on truth, and third point, trains for godliness. A good servant of Christ Jesus trains for godliness. Rather, he says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life, of, for the life to come. To begin with that phrase, train yourself for godliness. Train, the word there, discipline. In Greek, it's gymnase, which literally is where we get the word gymnasium. So it's an athletic metaphor. Now, some interpreters might disagree on this. But he's not talking about the sort of training, the sort of bodily self-discipline that would have maybe characterized the the very ascetic, self-denying heretics of the earlier verses. Remember these individuals who, verse 3, forbid marriage, require abstinence from food. They were very austere. They were very self-disciplined. And there is a time and, and many seasons of the Christian life that also require austerity. There's a true type of asceticism and a false type of asceticism, right? But that's not necessarily, I believe, what Paul is talking about here. I think he's using an athletic term because he's using an athletic analogy. He's comparing the discipline involved in godliness to the physical training of athletic pursuit. Think about what this means in our own lives. As much as we would love it, men, let me talk to the guys in the room, especially the young guys. You don't wake up shredded. I wish you could. That would be awesome. Right? You, don't, you don't just drift into fitness, into being at the top of your game. Right? You can't just go to bed one night and have a giant meal and then wake up the next morning and run a five-minute mile. What do you have to do? You have to set a goal. You have to pursue it. You have to eye the prize, and then you run. You train yourself. You deny yourself. You beat your body into submission. And in the same way, we don't just coast into godliness. Listen, if you are not gaining ground in, re- in regard to godliness, 
your walk with the Lord, chances are you're losing ground. You're either drifting forward, but you can't drift backwards. It takes intentional daily striving and pursuit. And to do this, we avail ourselves of the spiritual disciplines as well. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, fellowship together corporately, corporate worship. But why do we train ourselves for godliness? Paul explains why. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So get this, as valuable as fitness is, and it is valuable, it's of some value, don't neglect the body. Don't let yourself go because spiritual things are more important. That's not what Paul would have us do. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As valuable as fitness is, and it does matter, godliness is infinitely more valuable. Exercise, physically, is limited in two ways. One, it's limited in its effect, right? So you can put in a lot of effort and energy into your physical physique with very limited results, but those results are pretty much limited to your strength, your lung capacity, right? your, your, uh, your endurance. They're not necessarily going to make you better at work. They're not necessarily going to help you be better at home. Maybe there's some mental clarity that you get from that, but it's pretty much just limited to a couple areas where you expend your physical strength, right? It's limited in its effect. It's also limited in its extent, in the duration of its effects. The word here where it says, of little value, or of some value, depending on your translation, that same turn of phrase is used by James. James chapter 4, verse 14. And this, interestingly, is where James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears Here's the turn of phrase, for a little time. It's the same word in Greek, and then vanishes. Our lives, our our bodies will be gone. They are a mist. They're a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so physical exercise is of some value, but godliness is not limited in either of these ways, either in effect or in its extent, because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Notice that. We understand godliness holding value for the life to come, right? Eternal things. We get that. Someday I'm going to die. I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to give an account for my life. And I'm going to spend forever with him, so I might as well work on godliness now. Godliness profits for all of life, though. Not just the deathbed when you feel the need to clean up your act, perhaps. Not just for eternity, but also for all of life, including the present life. Pursuing godliness will not just help you when you're in your prayer closet. Not just on Sunday mornings. Pursuing godliness will help you at work. It will help you with your kids. It will help you in your marriage. It will bear fruit in all of these areas. Your neighbors will notice. Uh, This week I had breakfast with a young student. Actually just graduated. He's someone who I had met at a conference. And uh, he was sharing with me how he just started a job in his field. He's doing business marketing. He's very excited about that. Uh, This young man was considering missions at one point. And he's, he's very open to God's leading in his life. But as he's pursuing God and as he's seeking to grow, his boss, who's a Roman Catholic, and it's funny because you don't always hear these stories. We wish this would happen to us on a daily basis. His boss approaches him and says, there's something different about you. Your work ethic, this is the first week on the job. Your work ethic is different from the other people here. 
And already he had opportunity to share with him what was different about him, that he's doing these things as unto the Lord. And he's had multiple spiritual conversations with him in the days ensuing. Godliness profits for all of life here and in eternity. But I just want to slow down a little bit and just look at something here. I think when we read about training yourself for godliness, bodily training versus godliness, I think we have a tendency to jump into a a conversation about spiritual disciplines, which are vitally important. But notice that Paul is not just saying that we should replace one set of behaviors with another. He's not merely saying, you know, for every push-up that you do, make sure you pray an extra five minutes. He's not just talking about behavioral modification. He's not just contrasting regimens, but results. He's contrasting the fruits of two different sets of disciplines, not just the activity themselves. So he's not just talking about the spiritual disciplines that we employ, the things that we do to attain to godliness. He's talking about the result, the effect, the goal, godliness itself. And I think this is good news because I think we can be really discouraged by this passage if we think it's just about how much time we can clock in prayer or in reading the Bible. Again, these things are vitally important, but we all know that you can go through these motions and not be any better for it, right? We all know people that are faithful in some of these personal spiritual practices that aren't bearing the fruit of godliness. They're not loving. They're not kind, right? We know that it's very easy for somebody's walk to not match their talk in that way. I think it's also good news for people who are in different seasons of life, for the mothers. You, you can't have an hour and a half long quiet time every morning. That's just not how motherhood often works at certain stages of life. And I do think we have a tendency to overemphasize personal, private piety to the expense and to the neglect of corporate worship. Because as soon as we think about training ourselves for godliness, we're thinking about personal things, and that's true and that's valuable. But notice the list that Paul gives later. In verse 12, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth. Be an example to the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. These are all public virtues. These are things that the whole church would see and enjoy in his life. The goal is that fruit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And gathering corporately together for worship is just as much a spiritual discipline as praying in the quiet and solitude of your own home. So I think the point is not that we count our reps, right, and how many times we pray and do these various things, but the point is also how are we doing at pressing into Christ? How are we doing in godliness itself? Are we achieving the goal? Are we bearing the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, patience, peace? Kindness, goodness, self-control. A good servant pursues personal holiness. I do think this is particularly relevant to pastors. Because I do think that in our day and age, with all the scandal that we hear about publicly as well, if there was more pastors that cared about their personal holiness, even at the expense of personal platform building, we wouldn't be in half of the mess that we are societally. Personal holiness, personal godliness, reverence for God is indispensable. And so Paul affirms the saying, verse 9, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He amends himself. And why does he do it? He does this throughout the letter. 
every time he's giving affirmation to maybe a phrase that was commonly circulated. But I think in particular, he emphasizes it here because this is a subversive idea. He says, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. That's not what you would think. In fact, we have an expression in our language. We say, if somebody's going through terrible times, well, at least you have your health. At least you have your health. We tend to think, as long as the physical body has all that it needs, everything else will work itself out. Or at least you have that, your own health, your own constitution. Paul turns that on its head. Actually, if you have godliness, you have enough even if you aren't at the height of physical fitness. In chapter 6, turn with me there, chapter 6, he's dealing with the fact that there are some people out there that think that godliness, especially professional ministers, he says there's some that imagine godliness is a means of gain. He's warning against greed in ministry. And he says, but, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So Paul's perspective is, if you have food and clothing and godliness, you're good. You're good. So godliness is sufficient. It bears fruit. It infiltrates. It puts its roots in every part of our life. It evidences itself everywhere. It's never irrelevant to our lives. And so Paul encourages us to athletically strive and discipline ourselves. So let's ask ourselves, what do we rigorously discipline ourselves for? What are the things that you wake up early for? What if we cared as much about our own godliness as our fitness or diet or our schedule, our budget, our work, our productivity in the home, our children? Chances are, whatever you most discipline yourself towards in pursuit of a goal, chances are that that is your God. What if we just put in half of the effort towards our own godliness, right? A little investment in godliness can pay immeasurable, infinite dividends. But this requires that we have some delayed gratification. This requires that we begin with the end in mind. We keep the goal in front of us. So we need perspective. And that's our final point, is the perspective needed for a good servant. A good servant of Christ Jesus hopes on Christ. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So first, he says, for to this end, for this reason, we toil and strive. So he's talking about what preceded. He's not talking about what proceeds. He's not saying, to this end, we toil and strive in order to, to know God as Savior. He's not, saying the, he's, he's not pointing forward in the text. He's pointing backwards. To this end, meaning the promise of godliness in this life and the life to come, godliness and all of its benefits. That's why we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God. In Scripture, hope is not the way that we use it. You know, I, I hope the Cubs win this year. I don't, by the way. I'm just using that as something unlikely. <laughs> but we, we use the term hope in that very vague, hypothetical way in our vernacular. In Scripture, hope is a confident expectation. It's, it's looking forward in the anticipation to something that you know is certain in outcome. We hope in the return of Christ. We're not hoping it happens. We're setting our hope in the fact that we know it's happening. It's coming to us. It's a certainty. It's a given. 
So this isn't wishful thinking. Why is a servant of God, whether they're a pastor or a layman, supposed to work hard, to strive in godliness, to study the word, to self-feed, to pray, to labor in personal holiness? Why? Because we set our hope on God. Because we look forward to that beatific vision where we see God face to face forever. This is the perspective that we need. If we're going to spend forever with God, we should condition ourselves for it from now. I don't know if we always understand this because it seems that, well, okay, if I'm going to be with God forever, like this life is here, this is separate, and and then when I'm with God, then I'll be with God. Why do I have to prepare myself for that, right? Because when I die, won't I be rid of all of my sin and my selfish proclivities anyway, right? And, And I'll be glorified there, so what does my godliness now have to do with seeing God and preparing myself for that? By way of analogy, my wife and I are in the middle of a move. We're preparing a move uh, next month into a new home. It's exciting. The kids are smiling over there. They're excited. But I can assure you, we are not going to start packing the day of settlement. We've already begun packing. More than half of our stuff, probably. And we do other things, too. When we drive through the neighborhood, we kind of slow down past the new house. We kind of anticipate, you know, we dream, we imagine. Then we go home, and my wife is doing lots of boxing, and, and we're, reg- we're, we're readying ourselves. We're cleaning house, literally cleaning house. See, we're living differently in light of what we know is coming. And we need to do the same thing as believers. It's Colossians 3, right, that our life is hidden with God in Christ. We should fix our gaze there. You're going to live differently. You're going to toil. You're going to strive if you know where you're going. You're not going to start cleaning house in your life spiritually the day of your move. Grace doesn't cause us to coast. I think we're afraid to talk about God's grace because we think it'll produce indifference towards God's law, towards his standards, his commands for our lives. Hoping in God as Savior doesn't make you lazy. Paul echoes this in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace. The grace of God has appeared. What does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, and then hope, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when he tears the sky open and comes down, don't you want to be ready? Don't you want to be prepared? Don't you want to have cleaned house and packed the truck as it were already? Grace doesn't coast It trains us to renounce ungodliness. It yields discipline. It yields missionary grit, which is something I think that we are, and even myself, I think we're sorely lacking. Listen to these words. This is from what's called the Serampore Form of Agreement. This was a document put together by William Carey, the father he's called of modern missions in 1805, took the gospel to India, him and his compatriots, And they finish with this charge. And notice, these are Calvinistic Baptists who gave this message. They believe in the sovereignty of God. 
Right? The, the, the classical misunderstanding is that that would make you lazy. If you believe God is sovereign over who gets saved, that'll make you lazy. You won't believe in missions. Well, they disprove that, and they say this in their statement. Let us give ourselves up unreservedly to this glorious cause. Let us never think that our time, our gifts, our strength, our families, or even the clothes we wear are our own. Let us sanctify them all to God and his cause Then they say, let us continually watch against a worldly spirit and cultivate a Christian indifference towards every indulgence. Rather, let us bear hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, and let us endeavor in every state to be content. Grace doesn't coast. It produces missionary grit. Paul says, we toil and strive to this end. Because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So I just want to close by drawing out three characteristics of this hope. What is it that Paul's hoping in? We get it. Hope reorients you. What is it about that hope? Three things. First, it's hope in the living God. If God was dead, godliness doesn't matter. Toil, striving, suffering reproach for the gospel— Those things don't matter if God is dead or if he's out there, indifferent, not involved in this world, sort of a deistic figure. If he was just a mere idol, then prayer and study and all of these things are in vain. We fall prey to thinking this. We live at times as functional atheists. We neglect godliness because at the end of the day, do we really believe that it matters, that God is watching, that God is listening, that we will be with him, that this life will be a distant memory the things that we care so, so much about right now. The Israelites fell into this trap of thinking as well. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, you're welcome to turn there. I'll read the verses, though, but this is after the exile. This is after the temple had been rebuilt, the wall, all those sorts of things, and yet there was something missing internally in the hearts of the people something that would remain missing in many of their hearts even when Jesus came. And so in Malachi chapter 3, this is the context is, is, is there's going to be a messenger who's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And then the Messiah is going to come, and then there's going to be a reckoning. Okay, so it's setting up this messianic expectation. The context is looking forward to the first century. God says to the people, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Imagine God complaining, saying that you've been complaining against me. What have we said against you, God? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They're saying, what's the point? What's the point in mourning our sin? What's the point in repenting? What's the point in drawing near to God, in disciplining ourselves spiritually? What's the point in worshiping God? It's all in vain. We would never say that, but there are days that we think it, aren't there? Of course, we know it wasn't in vain, because there was a reckoning that came in Israel. God did sift through these Israelites. It says some of them, in verse 16, there was a book of remembrance. Some of them got the message. They repented. They were the spiritual progenitors of those who came to Christ. Those were God's people, the remnant. The rest of them were eventually cut off. This spiritual attitude continued into Jesus' day. There was a reckoning that came at the end of the first century when 
when Jerusalem was judged. It wasn't in vain. God was going to judge. He was going to distinguish between his people and those who were just fake, but they thought that serving God was in vain. It's not in vain. We hope in a living God, not a dead God, not a God who's indifferent to our own spiritual walk. We serve a living God who cares, who's active, who's paying attention. Second, it's a hope in a living God, and it's hope in the facts of the gospel. And I just want to draw a quick connection here. Notice that the last time in this letter that we saw Paul specifically connect godliness and the living God, those two phrases, was at the end of chapter 3. He calls the church the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So for Paul, there's a connection between the living God and this idea of the mystery of godliness as we've been talking about godliness and being trained for it, and how does he define the mystery of godliness? He was manifested in the flesh. Godliness is a person. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. What's the point? Pursuing godliness is through the lens of the gospel. You don't just pursue spiritual disciplines as just this abstract spirituality, this abstract piety. It's not just about having an emotional experience and feeling closer to God. Listen, Any spiritual discipline that you employ, prayer, Bible reading, corporate worship, whatever that is, must go through Christ and Christ alone. It must be grounded in the fact that my own personal discipline doesn't make me worthy of God. Rather, it's because of what Jesus has already done by his grace to cover my sin, rise from the dead, forgive me, bring me to God as my Father, it's on that basis that I now draw near to him in gratitude. And that's the pattern. We're guilty, we receive grace, and we respond in gratitude. And finally, not only is it grounded in a living God, the fact of the gospel, but third, it's grounded in the hope of a Savior God, the living God, is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It's a confusing phrase, right? Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Does that mean that every single individual is saved? No, we know that's not true. Turn to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 20. There's a lake of fire. We know not every individual is saved. Does this mean what we saw in chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 3, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. And we saw several weeks ago that the context of that is all types of people, people from every tribe, every tongue, every station of life, all types of people that constitute the elect, the chosen people of God. Is that what it means? All without distinction, not all as in each and every. Possibly. It possibly means that. In which case, when Paul says, he's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe... The word especially there would mean that is. He's the savior of all people, that is, of those who believe. And it's possible he's using the word that way. Although I do notice, you might notice as well, that as you look in chapter 5, verse 8, verse 17, Paul uses the same term translated especially, and each time he uses it, there is a contrast intended. He's not just saying that is, but there is a narrowing. For instance, he says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household. 
He's going from general to specific, and I think Paul intends to go from general to specific here. I don't think that when he says all people, he's necessarily saying the elect, because then there would be no distinction between Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. He would be referring to the same exact group twice. I think he's intending to reason from general to specific here. So what sense can we say that God is the Savior of all people? He's not even necessarily talking specifically about the Son, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, but he says the living God. He's referring to the Father or possibly the triune God himself, all three persons of God. In what sense is God the Savior of all people? Well, one interesting thing, which may be relevant, there's someone else who was referred to as the Savior of the world in the Apostle Paul's day. Not Jesus, but Caesar. Roman culture functioned under an assumption that Jesus, excuse me, that, that Caesar was Lord. And so when the Christians said that Jesus was Lord, it meant something offensive and necessarily political in its implication. Caesar is not the savior of the world. God saves everybody in the sense of he preserves them. Nobody's life is as bad as it could be. Matthew chapter 5, he causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall for the just and the unjust. These are what we call common graces. For all of humanity, he's the only preserver, defender, rescuer. You could also understand this phrase in the sense of, of he's humankind's only savior. He's the only savior to all men. Who else is there? There's no one else. It's meant in that sense, I believe. These common graces where God is the one who pours them out on all of us. But then it narrows. It says, especially of those who believe. There are these common graces, these things we all enjoy. But the hope in which we toil and strive after godliness is specific to us as believers. There is special saving grace for believers, and it causes us to discipline ourselves, to train ourselves for godliness. Here's the implication. We aren't disciplining ourselves in hope of making the cut. We're not trying to earn something from God. That's not why we train ourselves for godliness. The reason we want to be good servants is because we know as believers that God is our Savior. He will save on that final day all whose faith is in Christ. We labor out of gratitude, out of a settled hope in what Jesus has done for us, not out of a self-righteous guilt, like I'm not doing enough. That's not primarily to be what drives us. We labor out of settled hope that God is the Savior, especially of those who believe. And so if we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, if we want to be a good servant, as Paul says to Timothy, We are to ground our joyful, longing expectation in Christ as our Savior. We should fix our eyes on him. You know the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we pray that you would help us to fix our hope on you, Lord, help us refute error. Help us feed and nourish ourselves on the truth.
Help us to train ourselves for godliness and help us to set all of our expectation, our longing, our joyful awaiting, more than the job or house or promotion that may ever come to us at some point in the future. Help us to look forward to you, knowing that you will save us who believe. And help us to labor out of the overflow of the forgiveness and love that we already have secured in you because of the finished work of your son so that we don't have to prove anything and so that we can hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.